make sure my microphone is on. It is. Good morning. I hope you'll excuse. I have a rough throat this morning. My family and I have decided all to, to get sick together because that's what good families do. Uh, thankfully, we've, it's been mild, but uh, we all have scratchy throats, and uh, this will make this somewhat of a challenge, but I know the Lord will speak to us today. Um, he always speaks to us if we are willing to listen. Oh, the new year. I always, it's been a while since I've been here. I know that. Um, I've preached before on the first Sunday of the new year, so I wonder if that's my role is to start our new year off rightly or wrongly. Um, uh, I was asked recently by a brother, why are you preaching this Sunday? And I said, well, I don't know. I think, the, I think it was time. I thought, felt the Lord's presence to divinely uh, divine the, the Word of God. I also like seeing my pastor there in front of me um, to, to, to be able to himself be preached to, which I think is important. Uh, but finally, as a teacher and as someone who takes seriously the fact that we are gathered here to listen and to learn and to teach and to apply, I thought it is time for me to, to once again be in front of you. And I am at this auspicious moment in the new year. And the New Year's an interesting time. It's an interesting place. We talk about New Year's resolutions. Who has, who has their New Year's resolutions already taken care of? Or who's procrastinating? Okay, good, good. Resolution number one, don't procrastinate on your New Year's resolutions. It's an interesting time because the, the New Year focuses us on ourselves a lot. It, 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 it turns us inward to say, where, where are things in our lives? Where are we going? I'm sorry, I need to fix this microphone. And a lot of times I hear people make physical assessments of their New Year's. They're, you know, I'm going to get in shape this year. I mean, I'm not. I, personally, I'm not going to. I should, but I'm not. Uh, but a lot of people make physical assessments. And it's an interesting time. Sometimes we look at our relationships in the New Year. Say, how are my relationships doing? Where can I do better? It's a time where we somehow want to focus on doing better than we did before. And that's a good thing. That's a very good thing. Our resolutions may focus on our careers, our finances, and many other dimensions of life. But we as believers, we who have the Spirit in us, I think our resolutions should almost assuredly be about our spiritual walk. Where are we in our relationship to the Lord? Where are, is our maturity? Where is our growth? What sins are we struggling with? Are we making progress in obeying Christ? And it's important to take a good look at ourselves because what happens so often is that we deceive ourselves. Our perception may not match our reality. And today we're going to focus on a church where their perception of themselves did not match their reality. And I think this is very important because we suffer from the same temptation, the same problem. And as I've titled my sermon here, Life and Death Perceptions, the church we will speak of today, the church that is written down there to warn us is one that I think we will benefit from learning about. And the biggest issue about perceptions, the biggest issue about what we think about ourselves is that we have to figure out how to judge ourselves. And oftentimes, we make assessments, we make perceptions of ourselves based on some image, some picture in our minds. So if I think I'm out of shape, and I am, trust me, I know that. But I'm also referencing something I have in my head about what an in-shape man my age must look like. 
And there's a problem in that because that could be distorted. It can be stained. It could have problems. If all I do is watch TV, and I do at night, and I love infomercials. They're so wonderful, and they're so productive. I probably am going to get a very difficult or different sense of what a healthy man looks like because they're trying to sell me some product that's going to make me look like He-Man or, or some, some muscly person. So we have to be very careful. And this is a problem in our society. Our perceptions don't match a reality. And you know this quite well. Turn on your TV and somebody's trying to sell you a perception about who you are that has nothing to do with the reality of how God sees you. So this is critical for us. We need to really get a hold of this. And in our spiritual lives, we can fall into the same trap, thinking that, perceiving that our spiritual lives are doing great, we are riding high, we are on a plateau, and yet, if we don't take a real hard look, if we don't take a step back, we'll actually be deceiving ourselves. And this is important because when we are deceived, when our perceptions don't match our reality, our behavior doesn't go where it needs to go. Our behavior is out of sync with where it should go. We will not grow in Christ if our perception is incorrect. Thankfully, unlike trying to get an idea of what a healthy man is in America, because that can be kind of tricky, uh, and thankfully I don't care what a healthy man is in America. I'm comfortable with myself, and uh, I'm okay with that. But thankfully, when it comes to spiritual things, when it comes to spiritual dimensions, we do have a standard. It's absolute. It is perfect and complete and knowable, and it's in God's Word right here. So we don't have to guess. We don't have to wander. We don't have to search. We just have to open and see that God is giving us our identity. He's giving us the reality of who we are. So we, we need to really take this into account. And I was interested, I mean, I'm a sociologist, so I study how perceptions in the country don't match reality sometimes. And one of the most interesting ones is about crime in the United States. I've been really focused on this. Right now in America, crime is at its lowest it's been since the 1970s. At its lowest, you look at any of the crime indicators, the highest point of crime was in 1990, 1991. So we've been low in the 1970s, it got high into the 90s, and then it's been falling ever since, back to the 1970 levels. The murder rate is the lowest since it's been in 1950. The murder rate in America is as low as it's ever been since 1950. And yet, survey research shows that Americans think that crime is getting higher year after year over the last decade. Over 70% of Americans think that crime is increasing, and yet crime is decreasing. Perception and reality are quite different. And as someone who studies society, I wonder, how does that affect us when we have such a disparate view, such a different view of the, of the reality of crime in America? Maybe we run around more fearful than we really should. Maybe we're not engaged in our community. I mean, who, what parent here would allow their child anymore to take that bicycle ride like we did growing up for a mile from home? You know, some of, things, some of us still do. Okay, God bless you. Uh, Americans still think we live in a more violent world than we actually do. And that, that causes me to think. Those are big picture discrepancies. Sometimes, though, or often, we live with just a little mismatch of perception and reality. It's a normal, right? We get up in the morning, we go to work, somebody says, how's your day? Or how are you doing? I'm fine. But you're not fine. There's problems going on. You had an argument at home. And we do that. That's a normal part of our lives. 
But today, my family, my precious family, all five boys, my wife and I, we're going to go take a family portrait. One of the scariest, most fearful experiences that I've ever had. And we haven't done it in years because it was so scarring to us emotionally. But we're going to go on faith. And if that picture gets snapped and we're all smiling, there is no bigger lie than that picture because what went into that picture is tears and struggle, sometimes a little violence. If, you're, if your family's like mine, anybody? And, and we're going to sell our picture of our family as just happy five boys and mom and dad happy. And yet right before that, there was so much anger and strife. And every little personality comes out of my sons about why they shouldn't be there. So pray for us. Pray for us. It's at 440. Pray for us. Um, this is important. And the church is called to assess itself. You've heard the word. I'm so thankful. You've heard. It is time to examine ourselves. It is time to assess ourselves, to see where we are. I mean, I'm a professor, so I love assessments. I love tests. I love exams. I love to know whether you know what I've been talking about or not. Well, God himself has offered us a way to test ourselves through his word. And today, we're going to test I'd like to test our church, and I'd like to test us as individual believers to see, is our perception and our reality far apart, or are they close? Because we want them to be perfectly together. We want to be true to who we are and what we want to do in this world. So God is going to correct our views. He is going to, if you allow him, he's going to test you. He's going to call you to test yourself. And in Revelation, in the letter, in the vision of John, we have one of the most important assessments of churches around. And they've been handed down to us, I think, for us today. Revelation, written somewhere towards the end of the first century, Christ speaks to seven churches in Asia Minor. He assesses their ministry, their external and internal spiritual lives. Nothing is hidden from Christ's eyes. Nothing. Now, the letter is written in the midst of some persecutions. You have to have that backdrop. There's some persecution of the Christians that they were struggling with, and word had gotten out. And there was probably persecution by civil authorities. There was definitely persecution by religious Jewish authorities. But the letter is also written with an eye towards future persecution. It's written with this tension that there is and always will be persecution in the church. So let us read this morning. Let us turn to God's Word. If you're in the Black Pew Bible, it's uh, page 1029, as seen there. Let us turn this morning to Revelation chapter 3, verse six, verses 1 through 6, and let us listen to what Christ speaks to us in the church today as he spoke to the church in Sardis. Would you read along with me? Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you, still, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white.
for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord, we thank you for your word, which is perfect and holy, and here to teach, here to correct, here to assess, here, Lord, to grow us. I pray, Lord, that that's what happened this morning, that we truly would have ears to hear what you would have for our hearts. Change our lives, Lord, from, from the inside out. Change our church, Lord, to be what it should be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we have just read the case of the church of Sardis, and Christ comes to encourage, instruct, and warn his sheep of where they are and what the relationship is to him. Are they drawing upon his power, or have they wandered away from the fold? And here in Sardis, we have an important city. Sardis was one of the oldest and most important cities in Asia Minor, what we now know as Turkey. And Sardis' prestige was high, even as it was conquered by multiple empires. The empires of Lydia, Persia, Greece, and Rome, in each their time, had control over Sardis. But yet Sardis was always held in high esteem because of a couple of things, its position, its geography, and so forth. So the people of Sardis were very proud of themselves. And the people of Sardis had held themselves in high esteem. And one wonders if the church had also held itself in high esteem. And here comes Christ with words. So if you're taking notes, I have three points today I'd like to introduce. And the first point is Christ defines himself. In the beginning of the, this section of text, we read in verse 1, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Christ defines himself. The phrase seven spirits may symbolize, in this case, the Holy Spirit himself, while the seven stars referenced also here, used in chapter 1, and to the church in Ephesus, may include both the earthly representatives of the church, but also may include their angelic counterparts. So here, the stars may also, may, may this link between the church here on earth, but also the angels in heaven. And there are a couple of reasons why I think there's support for this idea. Later on in Revelations, the, the use of the word angel is used over and over again. And it, it, it applies to the angels in the angelic realm, in the heavenly realm. And verses in chapter 8, 19, and 22 indicate that angels stand as representatives and helpers to local churches. So we have, if we are reading this right, we have angels that represent and stand, receiving our prayers and advocating and being representatives. And so in this sense, the bigger picture, I think, of this opening is that we are being reminded, and the church in Sardis was being reminded, that as believers, we live in two worlds. We have one foot in this earthly realm, but we are, by association and by practice, part of the heavenly realm as we are filled with His Holy Spirit and as we seek to worship God in the same way that is occurring in heaven without pause or end. What we have done this morning is attempting to mimic what is happening in the throne room of God Day in, day out, without stop, worship, singing, praising the Lord. And so in that sense, I think Sardis, Christ immediately turns to Sardis and goes, don't, 
you are prestigious in this earth, but church, remind yourselves you are also part of something else. You are part of the heavenly realms. And I think we today, 1,900 years later, can use the same message, the same reminder. And the words of him, it says in the verse, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I think most importantly, the opening line of this letter reminds us that Christ is sovereign. He holds all things in his hand. He is over all creation. And most importantly, he brings life to his churches. He brings life to his churches. Christ quickly dispels any false perception of who is in control and who has power over or is the source of power for the church and the world. So right away, Christ is asserting himself, defining himself as the sovereign Lord over his churches and the source of power over his churches. Point two, Christ decries his church. Christ decries his church. Continuing in verse one, we read, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. This, friends, is terrible news for any church to hear. For the Lord has given the most damaging assessment of their perception and the true reality of this church's spiritual state. The one who knows all things, created all things, the sustainer of all things, the, the one who is sovereign over all things, has made his knowledge of this church public. He has laid it out for all of us. Sardis, you think you are alive, but you are dead. And Christ says, I know your works. There is no other person who is able to succinctly and to accurately assess the church than Christ, who is the head. The, there are extremes at play here. The church in Sardis thinks it is a walking, talking, working, and breathing church. But in actuality, it's dead. It's decaying. It's a corpse. This is the church of the living dead and needs Christ to resurrect them. And he comes to give them that. You might be asking yourself, well, how did the church get this way? Hmm. I don't know. We're going to explore more. But what I can tell you this, from what I know, what was probably happening is that when the church asked the world for its opinion of itself, the world said, you're a good church. You are a good church. And when the church looked at itself in the mirror, it reflected back that message. We are a good church. That means one critical thing. The church was not offending anyone with its works or its message. The church was not offending anyone. You're a good church. You do good things. You don't offend anyone. You're okay. Keep doing what you're doing. By all perceptions, neighbors in the community in Sardis said, this is, these, are, these are good neighbors. These are good neighbors, this church. So that got me to thinking, well, what would it be, what would it look like to be looking like you're alive to the community? Good, good church. But then Christ comes and says, you are dead. And I would argue that there, there probably was peace in the church. There was probably peace. There was unity. 
There may have been strong fellowship. The church gathered and was, and was fellowshipping, and people saw that and go, that's good. We do that also at this club over here, so that's good. But the life-giving source of Christ must have been absent. Where I'm reminded, and we should be reminded of the words of Christ in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So the issue here may not have been about the works of the church, the good works of the church, quote unquote, but whether the works themselves flowed from the relationship with Christ. Were they in union with Christ and then works flowed out of that? Or were the works separate from the relationship to Christ? Was Christ present at all? The church in Sardis was doing all the right things, apparently. Meeting regularly, fellowshipping regularly, maybe even doing works in the community. And the community enjoyed these blessings. Maybe it was feeding the poor and clothing those without. But something was critically missing. There are a lot of possibilities in this church. There are things that we could conjecture, we could think about. There could have been a problem with correct preaching and teaching. That's always a possibility. And there were other churches in these seven churches that had that problem. Specifically Pergamum and Thyatira. And yet there's not mention here in Sardis about a problem with teaching and preaching. Correct theology. Maybe there was no active prayer life. Maybe there was no vibrancy in their prayer life, attempting to do all things through their own power. But again, we have no details here. Maybe there were counterfeits in the church. Maybe the church had over time allowed pagans into their midst under false pretenses and assumptions. We're not entirely sure, but the evidence from many of the other churches that Christ addresses includes details of outside influence of persons and ideas that have corrupted the church somehow. This was the struggle. There were false teachers everywhere. There were ideas that were corrupting the gospel. Could the church in Sardis, through its corporate individual dimensions, have become, as multiple commentators state, quote, the perfect model of inoffensive Christianity, quote, a picture of nominal Christianity, outwardly prosperous, busy with externals of religious activity, but devoid of spiritual life and power? Quote, could the church in Sardis been that of a beautifully adorned corpse in a funeral parlor, and the Lord is not deceived? If this is the case, then we really need to pay attention. For I think we in the United States, the church in the United States has many of the same struggles. At some point, something the church does will cause conflict with the world around us. If the church is preaching the right message and the church is true to the word of God, at some point, something the church does will cause conflict. And if there are churches out there that never do that, either through the individual member speaking the truth of God to a society that has rejected the, many of these truths, or the church through its preaching and teaching, then something might be wrong. Our message would undoubtedly, uh, undoubtedly offend others who disagree with us, be it on matters of life, be it on the unborn, 
to the dignity of all peoples and all ages, issues on the sanctity of marriage, a biblical view of homosexuality and other sexual immoralities, or a bunch of other topics that the church, through standing upon God's word, stands in direct opposition to the world. Eventually, we will offend someone with our message because the world's message is completely different in many ways. But the source of our message is love. The source of our message is hope in the gospel of Christ Jesus. That has to be the key. We may offend with our message, but we must be loving even as the offense occurs. Let us continue to read on and see if the words of Christ open our eyes to more possible answers about the problem of the church in Sardis. Point number three, Christ directs his church. Christ directs his church. In verse two we read, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Wake up. This is the instruction of our Savior and Lord. Christ calls the church in Sardis to respond and this assumes that they have his power to do so. He's not giving them a false command. He's saying, wake up. You can do it. I'm giving you the power. And if you do, you must strengthen what remains but is on death's doorstep. This tells us that at first the church in Sardis was true to Christ. They had good works flowing from their love of Christ. But over time, a slow departure and decay had occurred. It doesn't happen all at once. Many of the works of this church are in their spiritual death. And Christ sees the complete incompleteness of them. The works of the church must match the full and complete works of Christ while within his earthly ministry. We must do everything that Christ did. We must be a reflection of his, of his hands and feet, we like to say in the church. But more importantly, of his message. We must obey all of his commandments. In John 14, 12 through 17, we read, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this is what this is, I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. We have everything we need, everything we need to do the work, all of the work that God calls us to do. So we need to wake up. I think we need to hear these words today. This isn't a call to arise from a peaceful slumber, from a long nap. This is a jolting, fearful, unnerving, wake up. We should be prepared. When this happens, we should be prepared to be challenged, frustrated, and convicted if we have become lazy and unfaithful in our spiritual lives as individuals and as a church. Wake up. We need to look around and see what aligns in our lives with God's word. We need to judge what has become important to us, possibly out of tradition or ease, and yet not, is not fruitful in growing us closer to Christ or sharing his message to the world around us. In verse 3, we continue. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. 
Apparently, Sardis has forgotten what it has received, the gospel of Christ, and the call to spread this gospel from its community to the ends of the earth. And with the loss of the gospel, repentance disappears. If you want a sign of the loss of the gospel, look at a church and ask them, do you repent? And they will say, no, for we have no need. We are perfect. They may not say that, but that's what's in their hearts. John Calvin once wrote, True repentance is firm and constant and makes us war with the evil that is in us, not for a day or a week, but without end and without intermission. Just like we should worship God 24-7 as the angels worship God 24-7, we should be repenting with that same frame of mind, looking deep within us. And Sardis has not done this. They are broke. They are impoverished without the life of repentance in Christ. And as we continue, Christ relates his action. He says, remember then what you have heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. If we do not do our part in response to Christ and his call, we will not persevere and, and we will wither away. And like a thief who shows up to do his work, there will be shock and awe, sadness and lament. I don't know. I don't know, hopefully you've never been robbed when you're at home. But even if you are not at home, and you come home and somebody has broken into your home, it's quite a jarring experience. It's very nerve-wracking. I had something like this where my son came home. Um, uh, I did not know he was coming home. I was asleep, and he came in through the front door, and I didn't know that he could do that. I didn't know he had a key to do that. And I woke up, and I thought there was a burglar. I do not want the picture of Christ coming in like that through my door. I do not want it. And I do not want it for this church. It is not a good thing. This is not about so much about Christ and his coming to the church of Sardis. It's a warning. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. And to the Sardinians, it's interesting. They would have really possibly hit this. It would have hit them hard. Because in Sardis, Sardis was on a mountaintop, and it was impregnable. That's why it was also so powerful. Nobody could overcome it. No army could really rail against it because it was on the mountaintop. It was high. Except twice in their history, people had by night snuck into their deepest fortress and taken the city from the inside like a thief. So the church in Sardis hopefully would have said, wait, this can happen. We think we're perfect. We think we're powerful. We think we're impregnable, and yet... Christ can easily sneak in, can't he? We continue in verse 4. Yet you who still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. There's our final point. Christ describes his people. Christ describes his people. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. We change. The warning is over, and now there's hope for some. Christ knows all of his sheep, and he tells us that in Sardis there are still faithful worshipers. Their perceptions as true believers are matched to Christ's own judgment. Praise the Lord. They are worthy for their walking with Christ and will continue to walk with him. They will persevere, and we, you and I, will know them by their perseverance. 
And it's this issue of appearance that is extremely interesting to me. And it may be a clue, it may be a clue to the possible problem in Sardis. For those that walk the streets in the ancient world, can you imagine the ancient world walking with your brand new dry cleaned robe? Are you going to get dirty? Did everyone walk around in the streets of any ancient city stay clean for very long? Probably not. Now, you and I, we live in a different world, right? If I get a stain on my shirt, I got to go home and change because I got to be spotless. But back then, you got used to being stained. There's not much you could do to avoid it. And I think this is a message to the church in Sardis that they have been stained. They are in the world, and they have become of the world. And the scriptures give us parallel verses of this idea of soiling their garments, meaning to be stained by participating in idolatry, to be stained by participating in sexual immorality. Why would these church members, if this is true and they suffer from this, why would they do this? Maybe they wanted to avoid sticking out. Maybe they wanted to fit in and not cause any conflicts. Because in Sardis, like many other cities in Asia Minor, there was healthy pagan worship and there was healthy Roman worship. And to be a good citizen in Sardis meant you should probably participate in at least the worship of Rome and Rome's emperor as God. As a Christian, you could not do that. But there's some evidence here that maybe, maybe some of the church had fallen weakness to this problem. Maybe they did it to avoid persecution. Isn't that a good enough reason? No, it's not. It isn't. Here's a sense that possibly this good church was good because it was also just like everyone else in the community. And in my research on Sardis, I looked at something that's quite interesting. Sardis became wealthy because it did something very unique. In the ancient world, gold and silver were often together in a coin because they couldn't separate it. And so people didn't like using coins because they never were sure how much gold was in it. And that was a perception, and that's, they, they did the best they could. People in Sardis were the first to be able to separate gold and silver, and Sardinians were the first to create true gold coins. And that's how the city was made wealthy. How ironic that they were able to purify gold and thus create their wealth. And this church was impure. This church had stained itself. It was mixed with unhealthy and sinful attitudes and behaviors. Church, do we have the same problem today? Do we have the same struggle about sticking out or fitting in? Do we have the same struggle about whether we might be persecuted for what we say and do? Let me remind you that the reality of living in Christ is full of persecution. And the words of Christ himself reveal this to us over and over again. Matthew 10, 21 through 22. Brother will, will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Again in John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 
are we that kind of church? That at some point, somewhere, some way, we will offend someone and the world will hate us. We should be. Because our message will respond in, in disagreement and hate and anger. And if you know anything about our country, you know that this is true. When a Christian goes on TV and, and, and stands for God's word on some social issue, there's this revile and disgust among so many. That's okay. Christ told us this would happen. And in verse 5, we continue to read, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. We conquer by persevering, by obeying, by pursuing holiness in this life, by his grace and by his spirit. This perseverance will result in victory. This is not inconclusive. This is a fact. Christ will never blot out the name of those who persevere. The end of our lives, the end of our lives, is when this assessment is made completely public to the world and to ourselves. That's why funerals are so important for Christians. Because if they have run the race and persevered, it is one of the most joyful experiences because you can point to that believer and point to his family and friends and say, this man persevered. There was no doubt where he is right now. But it requires us to be patient and persevering till the end. There is no shortcut. We have to continue to obey. And in this final verse, verse five, in this verse 5, there's something else interesting that comes out. Christ says, I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And when you hear that, I think that many of us are reminded of Matthew 10, 26 through 33. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than any spar many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. I think Christ finishes this part for the church in Sardis to give them a heads up. He will confess them in heaven if they will do what? Confess him here. And it is quite possible, friends, it is quite possible that this church's main problem was that it was not confessing the Son. It had a problem of evangelism. And the more I thought about that, the more I thought that is really interesting because we can be the most pious, wonderful, gracious, loving fellowship in this building but if we never, ever speak of Christ outside of this building, no one would ever know. It is evangelism that makes us unique and distinct in the world. It is not the worship of God on Sunday morning to the world. They're not here. They don't see what, we, what we're singing, and they don't hear what I'm saying. They're out. We want them to come here, and that is why we talk to them about Christ, to eventually 
the Spirit doing its work brings them into the fold and brings them into our midst so they can hear the gospel again and again and again. So they can hear the gospel in a different way, in a fresh way, in a new way, because we've already given it to them in the way that God has laid it upon our hearts. Maybe the problem in Sardis was a problem of evangelism. Their fear of men, maybe their fear of rejection, maybe their fear of a bad perception among the Gentiles and the Jews. Many, may, maybe all of that had hindered the spread of the gospel. And I think that's something for us today, this morning. We just finished a wonderful Sunday school, a couple Sunday school lessons back on God at work. And it was really focused on whatever you're doing, do it for the glory of God, but also, also make work a way for you to spread the gospel, whatever your work is. If you're a mother at home with children, your work is going to spread the gospel to your children. And it is a glorious work. But I remember one chapter, it was titled, Put God on the Table. And for those of us who work out in the world, it was a challenge. And it's one that I had not really done well. And that was this. When you're talking to somebody, throw God out there. Make it known quickly, briefly, simply that you are a believer. When someone tells a joke, you say, oh, that's a great joke. A friend of mine at church, he had a, di a different joke. It's kind of the same thing. Or, yeah, you're a really good singer. We, uh, we have a wonderful singer at church, and, 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 and he does, you know, he, he's really good and so forth. Throw God on the table every time you're talking to somebody. Try your best to make your identity known that you are a believer. And I was challenged by that. Because especially where I work with a bunch of professors, most of them who are not believers and are against God, I shrank many times with that. But I finally decided, no, I will not do that. If I cannot do this and be faithful with this small task, how can I be faithful with, or how can I even ask God to bring somebody into my life who I will preach the gospel to? Some non-believer. Our prayer in 2014 was that we would grow by the Lord bringing in non-believers into our midst. The same prayer is that we would grow by having non-believers attached to us in relationships and we would preach the gospel to them at work, in the office, at lunch. Over time, as we grow in love with them and supporting them. If I won't just throw out that I'm a member of Park Hills Baptist Church and we have a wonderful living activity and you should come, if I'm too scared to do that, I'm useless to the kingdom. And I have failed and I am near death. So for us today, evangelism, I think, is our call. I think it is our duty. It is our joyous blessing, and it is our challenge. How is your evangelism growing? How are you doing in those moments where there's somebody there who's hurting, and they need the Word of God, and you are still so shy because you know they don't believe, and they don't like God, and they don't like church, and they had a bad experience, and this and that? None of that should matter. None of that should matter. God gives us the power. We've read scripture today. He gives us the power. He sources us with his Holy Spirit. All you have to do is be available, willing, obedient, and he will do it all. So my commitment this last year and, and, and this 2015 is I don't want anybody at ACC to not know that I'm a Christian. Not a single staff member, not a single student, not a single faculty member. That's my commitment. Will you make the same commitment wherever you are in your world? Let know, and you know that there are people who do not know you're a Christian. You know there are. Well, do it quickly. It's like a Band-Aid. Tear it off. And you know what? It never hurts. People are, in this town especially, in this state, people are friendly. They go, that's nice. 
I told this to a professor who is a professor who does, does not believe in God and hates God. But I said, well, we, we teach this way in church because of this. And you know, she said, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought of that. That's all it took. And now I'm opening the door for more and more and more, I pray. And I pray that there will be more. And Lord, let me not be found unfaithful. Verse 6, we read, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Are we listening, Park Hills Baptist Church? Are we ready to hear? For in Isaiah chapters 1 through 5, often it was said, they will not hear. Judah and Jerusalem were stained with people from abroad, and God was rejecting them unless they repented and turned. And here Christ pulls from the Old Testament and says, do you have an ear to hear? And those of us who are believers, the answer is yes. The Spirit is within us, and we have an ear to hear. Will we heed the call? Will we heed the call, or will we quench the Spirit of God? Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that we will heed your call. I pray that 2015, the most important resolution we can make is for you to be in our lips and in our hearts more than ever. That every relationship we have, every friendship we've, uh, that you have brought into our lives, our marriage, our children, yes, Lord, we pray that you strengthen them, but Lord, now we, we pray for a special calling to preach the gospel, to be the gospel to those in our workplaces, in our clubs, and in our groups, in our social relationships. For Lord, it is there where you send us to be, and it is there where you have put us. And you teach us, Lord, that you have put us exactly where you want us to be to do your work. There is no coincidence. There is no chance. All of us who work in our offices, we are there to grow, and we are there to share. All of us who live in the home and raise children, we are there to grow, and we are there to share. And all of us, we step out of our doors, we venture out into the world, and there are opportunities everywhere. Lord, I pray that we have ears to hear and we have resolute hearts to respond. Lord, in your strength, we pray your special blessing. We pray a second helping of your spirit, Lord, that when revival comes, and we pray it does, it is a revival of evangelism. It is a revival of the spreading of your gospel to all those that come into our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, for he is our Lord and Savior. Amen.